Well, good morning again, church. Good morning. It's great to be back with you all after a week away on vacation. And as always, it's a joy to sing and pray and worship. And now we have the privilege of hearing from our God in his word. And if you are new or newer here at this church this morning here at ECC, we do just want to say we're so glad that you're with us this morning. So this week, we start a new short sermon series. We just spent over five months in the book of Philippians, and now, here in October, and for part of the month of November, we're going to be going through two short sermon series. And these are sermon series that I hope uh, will not only be interesting and helpful to your and my personal faith, but I especially pray that these series will give biblical direction and vision to our church as a whole from here on out. And to begin, for this week and then the next two weeks, we'll be in a series titled, We Are the Church. And here, as we'll see this morning, morning, the emphasis will be on why Jesus established the church. What does it really mean to be part of a church? And why it's helpful to know these things from the Bible. And then practically, in this series, we'll be talking about church membership. About why being a member of a local church is biblical, and especially why it's a big blessing. So that's this series, but then after, the, after this series, after these three weeks, in November, we'll start a series titled, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And we won't go into too much detail about that yet, but in brief, after seeing the biblical blessing of the church and the blessing of being part of a church in this first series, in our second short series, we'll see how Jesus lovingly and wisely told us the way the church is to work, to be structured, and how that's also a blessing for us. So that is our two mini-series that we're beginning today. But with all that said, so as we begin our first sermon in our series, We Are the Church, you can see in your sermon bulletin there that the big question we're asking this morning is, why did Jesus establish the church? And, And I think it's helpful to start here because we might take being part of a church for granted. We might take all of this, this assembling together as Christians for granted. But in reality, we could imagine that Jesus could have not established this thing we call church. Because think about it, the gospel, the, the central news of Christianity is that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and is coming back one day. And then we know that along with this gospel, His plan is that before he comes back, he's going to save people, right? People from all over the world, people who have a relationship with him, who know him and live for his glory. And and all of that is, of course, true. But notice, if we just said that, did you hear what's missing? Any talk of the church. The church. And so once again, if we use our logic alone, we might imagine this Christianity thing is just an individual thing. That, that it's basically, if we really boil it down, we might think it's about you and I individually being saved and helping others be saved and living personally for Jesus' glory. And sadly, I think in a lot of evangelicalism, we tend to think like that. We know we should gather once a week to church, to worship, but that's really the main thing we think of when we think of the church. But then when we read the New Testament, in the Bible, we see that this idea of the church is no small idea. Instead, it pervades the New Testament. And not only that, we see that this big idea of the church was established by Jesus himself. Or or to say it most plainly, we read in the New Testament 
that Jesus' plan is not just individual gospel conversions and then people individually living for him. Nor do we see Jesus just saying, people will come to know me and then they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll just do whatever seems best to them. Not at all. Instead, he himself establishes the church. It's his plan. It's his way he intends the gospel to be believed and spread. It's his idea. And so that being said, this is, this is an important topic because the church is Jesus' plan. It's our Lord's idea. Or as I heard one pastor recently say in a sermon, quote, Jesus has one plan and it's called the church. And so that's why we're doing these two sermon series. And that's also the point of this morning because this morning we're asking the question, so why? Why did he do it? Why did Jesus establish the church? And to answer this, of course, there's many answers, different types of answers we could give from the New Testament concerning why Jesus, why God established the church. But for the sake of this morning, I want us to see specifically from Jesus himself why he did so. And to see this, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And we go here because did you know that there's only three times, three times in the entire New Testament where Jesus himself talks about the church? Only three times in two different paragraphs. Now, there are three very significant times, as we're going to see this morning. And then importantly, in the rest of the Bible, in the books of A- book of Acts and the letters of the New Testament, this idea of the church is huge. As the apostles take what Jesus founded, and then they teach on it and they expound on it. But importantly, Jesus himself only mentions the word church three times in two paragraphs. And so for this morning, what we're going to do together is we're going to look at those times. And the first time he talks about the church is here in Matthew 16, which will be our main text this morning. And the second and third times will be two chapters later in Matthew 18, which we'll go to briefly later in our message. That then brings us to our outline of how we are going to go through our time this morning. So to begin, we are going to briefly go through this text in Matthew 16 here so that we understand the story and what's going on. But then after that, for the main part of our message, we're going to ask three questions concerning what Jesus says about the church. Three questions. First, we're going to ask, why did Jesus introduce and use the word church? Meaning, what does the word church even mean, and why did Jesus use it? And second, building on this, we'll ask, and if this is Jesus' idea, then who does he envision being part of the church? And then third and finally, we're going to ask, and what will this church do according to Jesus? So three questions. In brief, why did Jesus choose the word church? Second, who's part of the church? And then third, what does the church do? And then after answering these questions, as we conclude, we'll be able to answer our overarching question, why did Jesus establish the church? With that said, let's now begin first very briefly going through this paragraph in Matthew 16 here so we understand what's going on before we ask these questions. And remember, this is the first time in the entire New Testament that Jesus talks about the church. So look down in your Bibles for this. We'll begin in just verses 13 through 15. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So so that's the setting. Jesus has taught a lot so far in the Gospel of Matthew. He's done many miracles. And now he's asking the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they answer with a few good, godly men there, but then he asks them specifically, but who do you say that I am? And so the point of this passage so far is who really is Jesus? Which leads to verse 16. Let's read that now. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter rightly confesses who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the long-awaited for Messiah and he's the son of the living God which leads to Jesus' response. And if you notice, Jesus' response is basically the rest of this paragraph. But to start, let's just read verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so this is interesting. We'll come back to this later. But right away, it seems Jesus wants Peter to know that he's right, that he's blessed. But importantly, this isn't about Peter. And his ability to just rightly choose and understand Jesus. Instead, ultimately, according to Jesus, the glory of Peter's, for Peter's confession goes to God who revealed this to Peter. Then Jesus continues, verse 18. Look down to your Bibles, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we'll come back to that later too, but the main point here is that on this rock, the church will be built. And the emphatic part here is Jesus' amazing promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's the first of three times Jesus talks about the church, which finally leads to that at first confusing but important verse 19. And this is how Jesus himself wants to end this initial discussion where he establishes the church. So let's read verse 19 now along with verse 20 to finish the paragraph. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So so what is Jesus' final point about the church there in verse 19? Quote, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's be honest, that sounds strange. (laughs) But it's how Jesus decided to end this discussion. And we'll talk more about this later and what he means by this and why he mentions this. But that, church, is the passage in a nutshell. And overall, then, we see that the main topic here is who is Jesus. And the main thing that happens is that Peter rightly confesses who Jesus is. And then the main idea... and. promise of the paragraph is that Jesus will build his church and then the passage ends with how Jesus talks about this weird thing he calls the keys of the kingdom of heaven. With that covered, that now leads us to our first of the three questions of our text. First, we're asking, so why did Jesus use the word church? And for this, let's remind us just real quickly where he did by rereading the verse, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So remember, I know we're all used to hearing the word church, but this is the first time Jesus himself, in all his teachings, mentions the word. And so the question is, why did he use this word? Why did he use the word church, this idea of church? Because think about it, in this context, he could have said, I will build my people. But he doesn't. Or, since Peter just confessed his belief in Jesus, it might make sense that Jesus would say, and I will build my believers. But he doesn't. 
Or finally, we could think that he might have said, and I will build my kingdom. But he doesn't say that either. So the question is, why? What does this word mean? Why is he using it? Well, in Greek, the word, as you might know, this word is ekklesia, ekklesia. And most literally, the word just means assembly, assembly. Because the Greek word comes from two other Greek words, ek meaning out of, and kaleo meaning called. And so the idea is of those called out of some place and assembling in another place. Or as one Greek lexicon or dictionary says, this word means, quote, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public space, an assembly. And so that's the word Jesus uses. And importantly then for us, this means that this word church does not at all mean a building. It never means that in the Bible in the New Testament. And so in the New Testament, there's nothing special or holy about buildings at all. Now this may be called a church building because it's where the assembly gathers, but the building technically is not a church. Because the building can't be an assembly. Nor does the word Jesus used here mean a specific service or event. It can't mean that either. And so church technically is not a Sunday at 10 a.m. thing for us. This is a church worship service where the assembly gathers to worship. But this service here technically isn't church. The service is not the assembly. Instead... The word that Jesus decides to use here for church literally means people assembled. That's it. And now perhaps you've known that, but but with that being the case, really think about what this means that Jesus is saying to us here in verse 18. Because remember, Peter just confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And what's Jesus' response? Yes, Peter, that's true. And remember, God revealed that to you. But now hear my promise. I'm going to build my assembly. In other words, Jesus sees this personal confession of faith of one person and his response isn't, that's true, Peter, and I'm going to save a lot of other individual people too. Instead, his response is, that's a true confession of faith and I'm going to build my assembly. I'm going to have it that many people believe that too and that they assemble together. And and so to be clear, Jesus knows here that he's going to accomplish the gospel, that he's going to die for sins and rise again. And he knows that many people are going to come to faith in him through that gospel. But what he promises, meaning what his promised, purposed plan is for all of this, is building an assembly. Building not just believers, but believers gathered, believers who assemble together to worship him, to grow in their faith, to spread the gospel. And so that's the answer to our first question. Why did Jesus use the word church? But now that leads to our second question. So with this idea of people assembled, established, now the question becomes, so then who is part of this assembly, this church? And we sort of already have been answering it, right? But to see the answer in our text, let's read what Jesus says right before he mentions the word church. So for this, let's begin in verses 15 and 16 again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So who's part of the church? Who are those whom Jesus envisions assembling in his assembly? Well, it's people like Peter here. People who know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And this makes sense. Those who assemble in Jesus' church and Jesus' assembly are those who know and believe in Jesus. But let's take this even a step further. So that's what's in verses 15 and 16, but Jesus takes it a step further in verse 17. And and this, honestly, is another reason I love this text. Because if we stopped there and said that the church is just going to be filled with believers... We could think, okay then, so Jesus envisions this assembly as just kind of randomly being people who happen to believe in him. And although it is true that those in the church are those who confess Christ, like Peter does here, what's even more foundational and ultimate, according to Jesus, is what he then says in verse 17. Look down again at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so who's part of the church? Believers, but specifically from the mouth of Jesus himself in verse 17, it's believers like Peter whom the Father decided to reveal Jesus to. In other words, Jesus is making the point here that it's his Father in heaven who's responsible ultimately for those who are in the assembly. And if this is a bit new to you or a bit strange sounding, this is actually the second time that Jesus already talks like this, even in just the Gospel of Matthew. Because earlier in Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says this, and notice how similar this is to what he just said to Peter, verse 17. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so Jesus says plainly, no one knows the Father except the, those whom the Son chooses to reveal him to. And that's the word reveal in Matthew 11 that Jesus also uses when he says to Peter here, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And that then is the answer to our second question. Who's part of the church? Well, to begin, it's clearly believers. We see that with Peter's example, but then Jesus, our Savior, goes deeper. It's not just those who happen to believe, but it's those whom God savingly reveals himself to. And here's why this matters for us. So, So as you can see in our text, verse 17 is what then leads to verse 18. And so this sovereignty over believers, over us, in verse 17, is part of the reason why Jesus can be so confident about his assembly in verse 18. This is why he can promise and claim that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's because Jesus isn't being willy-nilly about this plan of an assembly. He, he and the Father aren't having this plan to have an assembly while being unsure who will believe in him and who will assemble. Nor is he putting this in our hands. Instead, it's his church because it's people who will believe in him. And ultimately, it's because it's his people whom he and the Father will reveal themselves to. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, like in the Gospel of John, my sheep, he has sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And that's why he can promise, I will build my church. Because church, this is his plan, and he's the one who will ultimately fulfill his plan. But that then leads us to our final question. So, and it's this question that might have somewhat of a surprising answer for us this morning. So we asked why the word church, then we asked who's part of the church. But now we'll ask Jesus in our text, 
And what will this church, this assembly do? And for this, we'll first look at verses 18 and 19 here, but then after that, we're gonna go to that last and final paragraph where Jesus uses the word church in the New Testament in Matthew 18. But to begin, let's read verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 16 here. So look down at your Bibles, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So begin in verse 18, Jesus says he'll build this church on this rock. And a big theological debate here has been, what is this rock? And the question usually is, is this rock just Peter himself, or is this rock Peter's confession? And the answer, as I think you can see in the text yourself, is that I think it's really both. Because it's not just about the person of Peter here. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholics want to make it all about the person of Peter, but the rest of the New Testament, and honestly the book of Acts, which is all about the church, doesn't support that interpretation. So so instead, what's this rock? Well, it's Peter and his confession here. And therefore, this rock upon which the church will be built is the fact that people will confess Christ. The church is built upon people like Peter who confess Christ. So that's verse 18, but again, our third question is, well, what will this church do? And this is where verse 19 comes in. Because there, Peter, representing believers, is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And to explain what these keys are, what these keys do, Jesus says these keys come with a certain authority. Quote, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, let's be honest, we probably read that and think, what in the world? (laughs) But that's why texts like this are so helpful, because remember, this is the first time in the whole New Testament that our Lord talks about his church. And in many ways, he's establishing the church here. And instead of talking about the church gathering once a week to worship, or evangelizing, or Bible studies, or outreach, or even for prayer, all of which are good things and things we focus on, what does our Lord and Savior decide to talk about? This. (laughs) He, He decides to talk about how the church has the responsibility to implement, quote, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so the question is, what in the world does he mean? Well, to understand it, think about the idea of keys. Keys. What do keys do? Well, they unlock They open doors. And so in brief, this language of the keys of the kingdom of heaven is the language of authority, or particularly of the authority to affirm or deny who's in the kingdom and who's not. That's why it's the keys of the kingdom. And and I know that may sound strange, and we will talk more about it, but in context, this actually makes a lot of sense. Because remember, the idea Jesus is introducing here is of an ecclesia, an assembly, And as we quoted earlier from our dictionary definition of that world, an ecclesia is a gathering of citizens called out from a certain place and assembling in another place. And so the idea here is that part of what the church will do, and the only thing Jesus decides to talk about the church doing here, is that the assembly has the responsibility to affirm with heaven's authority 
who is a citizen of the kingdom and so belongs in his assembly. And the church has the responsibility to not affirm if someone does not know Jesus and therefore does not officially belong in the assembly. And now you may be thinking, but why? And really, how can we have that authority? And the answer, in short, is because Jesus gave it to us. Now, now to be really clear, he doesn't say that we make people citizens. Instead, the idea of binding and loosing is the idea of affirming or denying. It's like you be being given a passport. A passport is not what legally makes you a citizen. You either are or you aren't a citizen, but a passport is proof of your citizenship. And Jesus says part of what his assembly, which he just established, will do, must do to be faithful, is handling the keys of the kingdom. And what's our rubric for doing this? Like, how, how could we do this? Well, it's not about knowing someone's heart perfectly or anything like that. Instead, remember the context. The rubric of these keys to the kingdom is exactly what Jesus just showed us with Peter here. Jesus asked Peter who he was, and Peter genuinely answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so for us, in all of Jesus' assembly, the authority is not to make someone a Christian. Instead, it's to affirm with Jesus' authority based on the biblical gospel to affirm that someone's confession of that gospel is true and so they are part of the assembly or not. That's the keys of the kingdom. And that's the one thing Jesus decides to talk about here that his assembly must do. Now we'll talk about why perhaps Jesus did this in a minute and we'll also talk about how this sadly has really been underemphasized by the modern church. But before we do that, with all that said, to confirm what we're seeing and talking about, now turn with me to the final place in your Bibles that Jesus talks about the church in the whole New Testament. This is in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. So turn with me there if you can. It should just be maybe one page to the right. And here... We'll see Jesus talk about the church again twice. But not only that, we're going to see him talk about this binding and loosing again. (laughs) Which shows us once and for all that according to Jesus, this keys of the kingdom idea is a big deal. So Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and this passage is helpful because if you want to think about it like this, Matthew 16 introduces the keys, but now Matthew 18 is the keys at work in a local church showing us that a local church has the responsibility of implementing these keys. So Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we'll read the whole passage. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So you may know this passage as the famous passage on church discipline, and it is. And the passage here is about someone who's in the assembly, someone who Jesus says in verse 15 is calling themselves a brother, but who is unrepentant. 
And the idea is at first you go to the person one-on-one, then with two or three people, then with the whole church in verse 17, which is the second time Jesus uses the word. But then importantly, what happens if the person still doesn't repent? You can see the second half of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, which is the third and final time Jesus uses that word, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so that's the idea. It's church discipline because of unrepentance sin. But then, notice what comes right after all of that then in verse 18. Verse 18 again. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so this is a passage on church discipline, as we like to call it. But even as we say that, what is this passage more specifically about? Well, building on Matthew 16, Matthew 18 here is essentially about a local church faithfully implementing the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Because the idea here is of someone claiming to be a believer in Jesus, but then because of unrepentant sin, they're showing that something's off. And on this, as a sort of side note, we need to know in the New Testament and in our Christian lives, brothers and sisters, we need to know that repentant sin and unrepentant sin are miles apart. Miles apart. Because we all struggle with sin every single day. And a major part of being a Christian is repenting of those sins and struggling against those sins for the glory of God. So that is normal, faithful, Christ-glorifying Christianity. But then on the other hand, someone living in unrepentant sin is in a totally different situation. Because by their unrepentance, they're showing that something's off, that the gospel isn't working in their lives in the way they say it is. And that's when church discipline comes in. That's when this binding and loosing comes in. Because notice in verse 15, if your brother repents, then the keys work in a binding sort of way. Quote, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Meaning it can then be affirmed that he's genuinely part of Jesus' assembly. Praise God. But then as we saw in verse 17, if all the steps towards reconciliation don't work and the person's still living in unrepentant sin, what's the answer from Jesus? It's to use the keys in a loosing sort of way. Meaning to essentially say because of this unrepentant sin, this person is, is showing themselves to not want to follow Jesus and his ways and instead is choosing sin over Christ. And the idea is because of this, we as an assembly sadly cannot affirm that they're claiming to know Jesus is legitimate. And one last thing on this, it's in this context that then leads Jesus to say that famous verse 20. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Because in context, maybe you're seeing it now, this is not about being present in small groups or Bible studies or prayer groups or anything like that, although he is always with us as his people. Instead, Matthew 18, 20, now you can see in context, is about Jesus being with his assembly, those who are gathered in his name as they're implementing the keys of the kingdom. So when the church decides to use the keys to affirm that someone is genuinely a follower of Christ, or to say lamentably that they cannot be affirmed as a follower of Christ, it's done in Jesus' name with his presence and authority, with the gathering, with the assembly. And so I know that's a lot, but those are the answers to our three questions. First, why did Jesus use the word church? Well, it's because it's his plan to build an assembly. Second, who's part of the assembly? It's people who genuinely know and trust Jesus by the grace of God. And then third, what does this church do? According to Jesus here in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, 
Well, foundational to everything else, the church implements the keys of the kingdom. And so that's our text in Matthew 16 and 18. But now, with all that said, now we can finally answer our overarching question. So why did Jesus establish the church? And here's where I hope after all of that we'll, we'll gain some clarity and that we might understand what the church truly is, perhaps in a way we haven't before. So again, in answering this question, there's a lot of answers we could give from the New Testament as to why Jesus established the church. But taking everything that we've seen this morning together so far, I think we can end with two overarching reasons why Jesus established the church. Two overarching reasons why Jesus' plan isn't just individual believers, but it's his assembly, his church. First, Jesus established the church, the assembly, so that we Christians would assemble together worshiping and living our Christian lives with one another in local assemblies. Again, he did it so that we Christians would assemble together, worshiping and living our lives with one another in local assemblies. And and we know this because, again, that's the word Jesus decides to use. That's what it means. It's people assembled. And so, so this means we know from the entire New Testament that we're supposed to do things like try to live holy lives and love one another and share the gospel and grow in Christ and understand God's word and pray. But the question is, how did Jesus envision all of that happening? Well, the answer isn't you individually doing all of that just on your own. Instead, it's the local assembly. And that's why, as soon as Peter rightly confesses who Jesus is, Jesus, again, doesn't envision Peter being alone. Instead, he envisions Peter and others believing together, assembling, churching, if you will, together, and living their Christian lives with one another like we see in the book of Acts. And this also, by the way, leads to why we'll be going over our second mini-series about church structure in November. Because this, as we're seeing, is Jesus' plan, local assemblies. But then along with this, in love, he didn't just envision us assembling together as a group, just doing whatever we think or our current culture thinks is best. Instead, he then also taught us in his word to assemble together in a certain way, with a certain structure, all for his glory and our good. And so that's the first reason Jesus established the church, the assembly. But then what we also see in these passages, as you've seen in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, is that there's another reason Jesus established the church. And as I said earlier, this is probably the one we don't focus on or talk about much. But again, this is the main thing that Jesus talked about when he established the church. And it's this. Jesus also established the church so that he'd have a representative assembly who would consist of those who are genuinely his. His plan was and is to have local assemblies who do their best to affirm or deny who genuinely knows him and who is representing him to the world. And again, it's this we don't emphasize a lot. We view church as just a building or a service and we kind of just see church membership as just something we do. But that's why I think it's so helpful (laughs) for us to go to passages like this that we usually don't go to and to go to do series like this because apparently, and I hope you see it for yourself at this point, apparently this is a big deal to Jesus, to our Lord and Savior, to not only be part of a local church, but to see to it that those who are officially part of the church are genuinely his. 
Now, this does not mean that we don't care about visitors or anything like that. We see that in the New Testament too, of course. Visitors, people visit the assembly. And hopefully, right, when they visit, if you're here and you're a visitor, hopefully when people visit, they see something attractive about us, some beautiful truth and love about this assembly. So it doesn't mean that we do not care about visitors, but it does mean that Jesus cares a lot about his assembly, about who is claiming they're his and who's therefore representing him to the world. And so part of our calling as a church, as a local church, is to do this with eagerness. We're, of course, not to be unloving or harsh or anything as we do this, but according to our Savior, it really matters who are his, and so it really matters that we implement the keys of the kingdom. And to be clear, this, this is for our good, brothers and sisters, because then we can know that those who are officially in this assembly are fellow brothers and sisters, that we trust and love the same Jesus, that we're partners in the gospel. But especially as you're tracking, you can probably see this is really for Jesus' glory. Because he cares that those who say they're his genuinely represent him and his gospel to the world. Which brings us back full circle to why we're even doing this sermon series, particularly about church membership. So next week, we'll spend our time going to many places in the Bible and digging into seeing why being part of a church is biblical in other places and why it really matters for us. But even here from just this morning in Matthew 16 and 18, I hope you're seeing that this idea of membership is no small deal. Yes, the word membership isn't used here. That's, we take that kind of from other, another place in the Bible. But membership is essentially just the way we obey what Jesus commanded us to do here in Matthew 16 and 18 with the keys of the kingdom. And this means that membership is not joining a club or anything like that. Instead, being a member of a church means that a local assembly has looked and is looking at your confession and your life which proves that confession and saying, yes, this person knows Jesus. They love and trust Jesus in the gospel. It's not saying they're exceptionally moral or a great person. That's not the point. It's saying they know Jesus Christ. They are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. They represent Jesus and they are part of his local assembly here. And without an updated and detailed church membership list where we really know who presently knows Jesus and who's presently representing him from this assembly... And without the other biblical idea of elder shepherds who lead and oversee and manage the assembly, we can't be that faithful in obeying what Jesus calls us to do here. And so that's who we are at ECC, and that's where we're going as a church. As the title of our series says, we are the church. And so my hope and prayer for us as a local assembly, as a church of Jesus Christ, is of course to continue to pursue loving one another, worshiping on Sundays and growing in Christ together. And I'm so thankful for how we do that as a local church. But also, because of what our Lord and Savior emphasizes here, our goal now is to also follow his lead as a church obeying his call to really implement the keys of the kingdom as we revamp and each one of us recommits ourselves to church membership. And then in the next series, to also follow his leading, how he lovingly says the church should be structured. And as always, we do this because this is from our Lord Jesus himself, and so it is a blessing for us, church, but also because by following his command and lead, 
we will live more for Jesus' glory.